ทัสปะกวาทวารหะโทสมมาสัมพุทธัสนะโมทัสสะปะกวาทวารหะโทสมมาสัมพุทธัสนะโมทัสสะปะกวาทวารหะโทสมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังธรรมสามิเออ it's quite uh, wonderful to see so many people attending this kathana I think it's the most people for any for any of the kathanas on a rainy November day <coughs> And these uh, ceremonies, it's uh, it's a very in the, to me it's a very inspiring ceremony because of the its tradition dating back to the Lord Buddha, and uh, it's uh, it's this generosity that is the the kind of foundation and basis of uh, Buddhism. So dana, or this this uh, this Pali word dana means generosity, and and the Buddhist uh, Buddhist sasana, Buddhist Buddhism is based on this is its foundation is encouraging generosity as a as a practice, not to to get out of just uh, stinginess, uh, selfishness, uh, thinking only of yourself, but also thinking of others and sharing. Uh, what is extra, or uh, what you have with others, and also supporting uh, religious mendicants. <coughs> so it's an attitude of, of encouraging, supporting uh, us who've chosen this way of life of alms mendicancy. <coughs> and of course, our life uh, is sustained by this this kind of practice. Um, An alms mendicant can't uh, survive if uh, nobody, if people were all stingy. <laughs> We'd have to take up some kind of business, I think, <laughs> or become counselors or therapists or something. But the, the, uh, but the whole attitude is one of. Encouraging this in the society, so this is an ancient practice. This isn't modern thinking at all. It uh, was the way that Buddhism has survived for 2,500 years, and that's quite a long time in in the way we regard time and history in our own culture. <coughs> so it's always uh, said a lot to me, you know. There's just the fact that the Buddha established. A monastic order based on celibacy and and an alms mendicancy, because the present day uh, modern societies uh, regard these as regard celibacy. I think is probably the the most sexual perversion, the most perverted of all sexual practices, <laughs> 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 and and. Uh, 
arms mendicancy is, uh, is, is not really, you know, like begging people dependent on others are despised. So, they, like, I was in India last year, and you can see, like, people, Westerners that travel in India oftentimes are shocked and, and put off by the amount of beggars that there are there. But beggars are a part of the society in India. It's part of the social strata, you know, so it's not, it's a, it's a way of life. It's not regarded in the same contemptuous way that begging is in uh, Europe or America. But in terms of uh, alms mendicancy, we're, we're not beggars because we don't ask. We're not, we're not going around kind of begging for things, but the impeccability of our life, the commitment to the practice, to the restraint, to the development of meditation, insight that we share with the lay people that come here. And so there's a symbiosis, there's a, there's a mutual need for each other and in that mutual appreciation from the lay community to the monastic one. And that to me is very kind of beautiful relationship, not that you can't uh, kind of, it's not a political one. Uh, in terms of modern economics, it probably seems uh, something that wouldn't really work, but the, the proof is that it does. Here in, in England now, you can see the, the, that this whole temple complex was built on uh, free will donations and um, I, my life in, uh, in Thailand and here in, in England also has been solely dependent upon offerings from others <coughs> and I've always appreciated that personally because it it's, uh, seems to me such a, an opportunity you know, a life that can be totally dedicated to the religious goal, where there, there's nothing, you know, in the way, where the, the conventions, the, even the society supports it. In a country like Thailand, of course, where I lived for many years, was the, it's very Buddhist country. Ninety-five percent of Thai people see themselves as Buddhist, Theravadan Buddhists. So. Th You've got a kind of homogeneity there that that is uh, that you can take a lot for granted. It's in the it's in the cultural attitudes. And but here in the UK, you know, when when I first uh, thought of coming here, the grave doubts arose in my mind. Like, how could I live as an alms mendicant in a non-Buddhist country? Because the way my mind worked, the way I saw it coming from the United States, was that, uh, you know, nobody would, they would just uh, think I was some kind of freak, some kind of probably odd person that should be locked up in an institution. <laughs> and walking around with a shaving head and these funny, and people think they're bed sheets or drapes. <coughs> But that's, but the, the doubt arose through my Western <coughs> conditioned mind, which thinks like that, thinks like a middle class American. But the, uh, 
the, the amount of faith uh, that has developed over the years in the teachings of the Lord Buddha, of course, through the, the practice and witnessing the result. Because the Buddha laid down a teaching that, that uh, it, it isn't a theoretical one. It's not an idealistic one. It's, not a, it's something very practical and uh, very direct teaching. And so the, that, and that's why there is so much appreciation, growing appreciation in the West and uh, interest in the practice because uh, these kind of situations, opportunities for pawana or meditation are being uh, sought after now. It's not, it's, it's not a part of our culture. Meditation is not, or even in, in Christianity, it's, even though there is uh, meditation offered, it's still not the main structure, not the, the point of the practice. It's a, it's a different way of, of a different conditioned form of, of a religious path. But the thing that attracted me to Buddhism was its directness. And the fact that uh, it emphasized meditation. Now meditation <coughs> is, uh, you know, is an English word that is usually used for all kinds of mental exercises. So it's a kind of generic term, meaning you do something with your mind, which could be profitable or even drive you uh, uh, crazy if you, if you did the wrong things to your mind. But, but uh, it implies um, th doing something internally, not trying to, to go outward and uh, seek to get something, but to uh, train the mind in some way. And then the uh, Buddhist practices of vipassana meditation, which have become increasingly sought after and appreciated in the West, are about uh, looking, awareness, uh, observing, investigating experience within yourself. Beginning to notice what actually you're feeling, what's going on in your mind. The, the greed, the hatred, delusions, fear, anxiety, worry, all these emotions that, that we are uh, haunted by, we begin to look at and recognize in a way that is seen, is a way that we can liberate ourselves from being bound into them, being victimized by them, being, or just endlessly trying to suppress or, or get away from them. In monastic life, of course, it, the whole structure uh, of monastic uh, training is around its, its restraint in, on the external. So our lives in terms of action and speech is a way of restraining ourselves. We, we have boundaries, how far we can go on with action, using our bodies or with speech. <coughs> and these boundaries I found very helpful uh, personally because uh, before I became a Buddhist monk I didn't have very many boundaries on action or speech. <laughs> Coming from uh, the west coast of the United States it's all, you know, d d do what your heart tells you, you know. Uh, 
follow each impulse. In, and in the 1950s, the, the aim was to experience everything as much as possible. I remember in Berkeley, California, they, they used the word experience as the, the kind of the word that everybody would say is liberating. Go out and experience. And uh, that meant anything, I think, any impulse or anything that came into your mind. <coughs> there were no, there no talk about any kind of limitation on behavior was considered um, with great detestation. No way, were, you know, were we going to be limited. We wanted this freedom uh, to express ourselves, to do what we want, to get what we want think what we want, and say what we want. So, and that had a certain pleasure in it. When you're young, it's, you know, you're trying to get away from the, the way your parents always uh, put limitations and boundaries on you. you. You went to the university and your mother and father weren't around anymore. And you, <laughs> you felt this sense of freedom and liberation from from the, the parental restraint. But then taking that, that kind of, of uh, experience to any extreme leads, that leads to confusion. Rather than feeling increasingly more free, and uh, that you feel more confused. At least that's the effect it had on me. Well, after, you know, two years living as a is a bohemian in Berkeley, California. Two years of bohemian hedonism. I I was the most confused man. I think in the in the place. Just very very and and a lot of self aversion, self hatred would arise because in that tendency to follow impulse and desire there was would lead me into doing things or saying things that you know I knew or some part of me knew. Or, were not right or skillful or, or not sensitive or kind, not useful and, and quite and, and lead to a kind of self-aversion. The thing that's inspired me was the uh, teaching of Mahatma Gandhi when I was in graduate school because it was, uh, and of course Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi was a, an example of a modern human being who, who did uh, experiment with life. In fact, his, his famous book is My Experiments with Truth. And his willingness to, to kind of use his life as an experiment. And, um, and truth was, uh, was the main, you know, to live in a way that, that you, you know, you developed wisdom and a sense of self-respect. And so self-respect is a very important part of the religious path. Uh, if you don't respect yourself very much, then, then it's, it's hard to practice meditation. You have no peace of mind. All you have is regrets and guilt and remorse, fear that arise in consciousness. So self-respect is generated through, say, generosity, isn't it? There's something about sharing uh, what we have with others that, that is quite beautiful and joyful. When we remember uh, the time, you know, like on, when people offer dana here, that there's a 
there's always a sense of joyful giving to it. It's not like bartering or asking for anything else. If people come here, all of you came here to offer to the Sangha without making any demand or request for anything in return. And so in that kind of purity of giving is also a sense of joy. And reflecting on that, remembering this day and uh, the goodness of this day will also bring a sense of joy and confidence to yourself and self-respect. So we're encouraged to, to do good actions uh, for the benefit of others, but also for ourselves, because the self-respect develops from that, from, from how we, the generous we are, how, uh, and the joy that we, we have in our lives. Then uh, sila, they have the dana sila pavana sequence in Pali. Dana generosity, sila is translated as morality. So that's boundaries on behavior, isn't it? Five precepts which you took uh, this afternoon. There's um, refraining from violent actions of killing uh, another human being or even respect for life in general. Bhanadibhata is uh, uh, to refrain from intentional uh, killing is, can apply to not only to other humans but to uh, all sentient creatures. But in uh, Buddhism the precepts are not commandments. They're not like orders from above. Uh, with punishing results if you don't keep them. So it's, uh, it's interesting to see how Western samanas, Western mendicants pick up morality in the Buddhist, uh, from the Buddhist uh, uh, context. Because we, we come from uh, social backgrounds, religious backgrounds that are very much based on commandments. You know, God orders you to keep the commandments and if you don't keep them, you're going to be punished. So there's a kind of sense of being punished for being bad um, and, uh, and then rewarded for being good. Where uh, in the terms of five precepts, th this isn't, the, this isn't uh, what, what is intended. It's not to be a commandment, but you're requesting, taking on precepts for giving you boundaries for helping you to be more aware, more mindful, more respectful uh, of life in general, and to refrain from intentional, especially intention of killing another human being, to refrain from murdering somebody. <coughs> we can see now how the uh, modern world is, is murdering people is just, you know, it it's happens all the time. There's, uh, in what's happening in Iraq is mass murder, isn't it? On both sides. It's, uh, it, there's no restraint on that, just to, you know, as much as they try to make it some kind of moral positioning uh, in regards to what's happened there, the, the actions that they're enforcing are going to involve the, the murder and slaughter of a lot of people, innocent people, as well as maybe guilty ones, and including themselves. So, Bhanadibhata, or respect for life, is not 
not a part of the modern political way of thinking. It's uh, kill, kill off the terrorists. It's not respect for life because a terrorist is, uh, is also another human being. And of course, uh, you know, people wonder who, who are the terrorists because both, both sides are creating the atmosphere of terror which is, uh, you know, who's, who's calling who what, you know. It all depends on, you know, what side you're on that you see the other side is terrorist. But in terms of Manandibata, this, uh, of course, is, uh, is uh, starts out with a kind of basic reflection of refraining from uh, intentionally killing another human. And then, as we, if we want, we can expand that. You know, it, it gives you the kind of base, basic precept, and then it's up to the rest of us to, to if we, you know, we want to not kill animals, insects, and so forth. This we we can also regard this precept as expanding it to include more and more sentient life. But you see, it's not a commandment, isn't it? It's up to, up to the individual. You request the precepts. They're never, never forced on you. you know, you're not intimidated, threatened uh, into taking them. You're encouraged to take them, but one, you know, it'd be wrong. It'd be an offense if I kind of forced or compelled you to take the precepts. Because they're not they're precepts. It's knowing out the difference between precept and commandment. Now this takes a much more reflective attitude, doesn't it? To feel that the w you want to take responsibility for how you're going to live in this society on this planet. Well, how, how am I going to use my body and speech? The fact, the things that affect others that that have their effect on the environment and on the family and on the people, on the society that I'm in. You know, what, what do I do with it? You know, and of course the, the uh, insight is, well, I want to refrain from using it in harmful ways for violent action, for using speech, for creating more confusion for lying or deluding others or insulting or, or uh, abusing others through speech. Now this can also, doesn't mean that I never feel, I've never felt such emotions. You know, uh, my nature is, isn't particularly a, a docile nature. So it, it isn't, you know, that I'm just naturally saintly and, and uh, the thought of murder has never arisen in my mind. Yeah, it's arisen uh, many times, actually. <laughs> and even though, you know, on the level of intellect, I'm all against murder, you know, I don't, it's not, I don't hold it up or see any, you know, as an ideal or something that I would want to engage in or even, you know, feel it would be good under certain circumstances. 
there emo on the emotional level, when one has been so so um, angry and enraged by uh, societies uh, or individuals in the society, that of course the that sometimes it's kind of primeval, primordial emotion of just striking out <laughs> is uh, is not uh, you know is kind of arises. But then the the restraint of non-action, isn't it? Because this precept of Bhanandibhata actually, you know, is is a, is something to guide. It doesn't. It's not a condemnation of having that emotion, but it. It helps to. It's a guideline for action, never to act on it, not to put it into any kind of action, or even threatening, not to use speech to threaten somebody with with uh, harming them. <coughs> so this is this is a religious path, isn't it? On, and just for worldly happiness for a good family life, or for happiness in the world. Sila, uh, Donna and Sila are conditions uh, sine qua non for happiness being, uh, in the world. You know, you think of a society that where people just live uh, only for their own interests, uh, with, with no respect, uh, no... Uh, you know, just using people, exploiting people, mis uh, deceiving people, taking advantage of them, being stingy and corrupt, of course, leads to self-hatred, leads to everyone hating you anyway, uh, towards mistrust. Uh, I can't see how anyone could live a very happy or joyful existence in the world if one lives a criminal life, because uh, criminality, where we we use uh, violent means and deception for our own ends, uh, can only bring up more fear uh, and dread and paranoia. Where Donna Sela gives us a sense of it brings joy and uh, and then self-respect by taking responsibility. For what I do, how I live in this in this society, to me that's worthy of respect. And I respect it in others, and then I respect it in myself. So in this way, one is developing a good good ego, and putting it in Western terms, or a sense of self-respect. The dana sila uh, is is the foundation, the basis for. Uh, the Buddhist uh, Buddhist religion, and so then uh, this is this is both for spiritual development and for worldly happiness. Sometimes uh, Buddhism is mistaken as merely a religion for spiritual uh, release on an ultimate level, and that we despise the world and uh, we you know we just uh, want to get away from it and. Uh, and reject it because uh, the emphasis is on a monastic order for one thing that's what it looks like isn't it we we're celibate and we we're not into all the the uh, pleasures of worldly happiness we have limitations on sense 
experiences and so forth. We must hate the world. And so, you know, we're just turning our back, turning away uh, by developing our meditations to realize uh, Nibbana. But actually, uh, the Buddha was, was taking into account uh, different human goals in life, and the worldly goal uh, for lay people, for people who have no aspiration or no uh, uh, opportunity to develop power now or meditation, then the encouragement is uh, developing these foundations of generosity and morality. In modern society here, these are these aren't necess- these aren't really Buddhists either. These could apply to any religion, and nobody's going to argue about that. Uh, you know that these would be these make a good society. Uh, we get along much better in the, when we're generous and when we we uh, put boundaries on behavior. When we all agree to kind of say, for example, the five precepts, there's a, that makes a, a society much more livable and trustworthy. If people try to live by the five precepts, then we tend to trust them more than if they, if they don't. People that have no kind of moral boundary, uh, you, t- one, you tend to mistrust. And you, you, they create this, this uh, feeling of unworthiness. You can't trust them. They are not responsible for what they do. So the the uh, notice that this the emphasis on Buddhism is in always something bringing attention to life in some way, either through giving, through sharing. And so it's not about a, an ideal of generosity, but very practical ways of being generous. You know, it's about the actual being generous, not about how you should be generous. Uh, morality isn't isn't a morality, say the five precepts are quite, uh, you know, give you, you know, they're pointing to restraint in terms of action and speech, respecting property. Uh, Around sexuality, isn't it? It's not to misuse or exploit sexuality for just uh, selfish happiness or exploiting somebody else abusing oneself or exploiting some other person in an irresponsible way. So, but it, it, so it, but it is it, it taking responsibility for our sexual uh, energies, meaning we're, we're not just going to let them go wild, become obsessed and taken over, or or use, or just for personal advantage, just for one's personal satisfaction at the expense of somebody else. But it's it's more reflective than that, isn't it? It's, it's I, we all have these bodies, sexual bodies. We all have these energies. This is part of our humanity in this realm. So this is an energy that that we need to understand. In a celibate life, the the determination to not act on the sexual impulses, so we don't have, uh, we don't get married and and have families, <laughs> and 
where we refrain from any kind of intentional sexual activity, not as a condemnation or a revulsion for sexuality, but as a taking responsibility in order to reflect on that, to understand, to get to see the, the power of these sexual energies in terms of Dhamma. Buddhist practice then of pavana is awakening to the way things are instead of interpreting life in the worldly ways that most of us think our patterns of thought and cultural attitudes uh, are kind of conditioned in a certain way. <coughs> the Dhamma teachings that we have in the, in the uh, suttas, in the scriptures, it's got, it gives us a kind of vocabulary a way, uh, uh, you know, a way of looking at something that, that is here and now, a reality, not in terms of idealizing or judging, but in uh, encouraging us to awaken, to recognize, to investigate, to see for ourselves. So the pavana practice or the meditation is all about awareness, waking up, paying attention. And at first we say looking inward, because most of us, uh, our habits are around seeking things outwardly, always looking for distraction or, you know, distracting ourselves through our sense consciousness. And so beginning meditators, they usually, the encouragement is to, instead of seeking things outwardly, to look inwardly. So you tend to practice watching the breath, um, be, being aware of the body uh, in terms of the reality of it, its posture in the present, uh, being aware of the, the mood, the emotion, the state of mind in the present. Uh, and looking at it, recognizing that in terms of Dhamma, rather than in, 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 in interpreting it in a very personal way. So we when we look at uh, emotional experience, for example, they, we have, uh, say, my worldly mind, say uh, somebody does something that really upsets me, I feel angry. Then the, the uh, cultural conditioning would say, I'm angry. You made me angry because of your bad behavior, and, and I'm angry because uh, you said what you did. And that's how it, and it seems, you know, as a, uh, that's the way one is conditioned to, to, to re react to the experience of anger. In then switching from that personal interpretation, I'm angry, to there is anger. It's a recognition. This is, oh, this, we're looking at that same energy and emotion as Dhamma with no personal additive. You know, it's, it is what it is. Uh, anger is like this, and our relationship to it, is, to our relationship to it, is is learning to recognize it, not to judge it and and say it's good or bad or it's anyone's fault, but learning to just see it and to be able to bear it, to let it be what it is, rather than trying to get rid of it. <coughs> so the 
attitude of vipassana is this awareness, receptivity, and, and investigation. They have words like this, investigating, looking into this experience, not through analysis, not when we start analyzing it, then it becomes personal again. You know, why do I get angry when you, when you insult me uh, and, and, then, uh, and, and then I get angry? Why do I do it? And then I can I start analyzing. That's one way. Of, but that tends to reinforce the, the personal uh, attachment to it. It's not, no longer Dhamma. It's become anger, my problem with judgments about it that becomes very complicated. But if I change from the self-interpretation to Dhamma, seeing it in terms of Dhamma, so what do I mean by that? In terms of Dhamma. So this word Dhamma is another Pali word. And it's uh, like you don't define it, you kind of point to it. it give, you have these statements like Dhamma is the truth of the way it is, or, but that, what does that mean? Or if you want to put it into more abstract kind of idea, you can say it's the truth, the ultimate truth, but then that tends to put it up high into some kind of, of uh, uh, superlative position in, in the way that we think. So the, the uh, attitude is Dhamma here and now, like anger, an angry feeling in my mind is Dhamma. I mean, so this means that I'm no longer judging it or identifying with it, but I'm certainly receiving, I'm certainly knowing it. And in that receptivity and knowing, uh, I see the way it is, that, that all conditions that arise cease. You're, you're seeing it in terms of the, the way it is, that condition phenomena is impermanent. And not self. We're not adding self to it anymore. Well, just try doing that, you know, and it's very, it has a tremendous uh, effect on one's life, to be able to see things in that way. Now, it's not a deluding, it's not trying to delude oneself. It's not a, a kind of exercise of projecting, oh, that's not mine, uh, and it's dumb. It's not taking the words and then projecting them onto the experience. But the words themselves are there to encourage us to look at it, to receive it, to know it, to recognize, to realize. And so the Buddha pointed to the, to the reality of this moment. All of, all of us at this moment, this is reality. This here and now. And so we're all conscious individual beings in this, in this temple. And we're all sensitive beings, isn't it? Being, this is a sense realm. It's a sensitive realm. And we and we like and dislike things. We have strong feelings. Uh, we have all kinds of, of emotions that are very uh, unpleasant. Things that are like worrying, anxiety, doubting, uncertainty. 
just uh, and we find a lot of this in affluent countries like this where people have a, a m such a high level of security and uh, and abundance and stable government and yet we create endless worries in the mind worried anxious depressed stressed uh, these are the words that you hear all the time about how people experience their lives And so you think, well, why? What, what can we do? You know, we trying to get get a better governmental system, improve the health service, the trains. <laughs> <laughs> you know, try to endlessly kind of uh, make the society better and better and better. We could get the most efficient health service, uh, train service. Um, motorways and schools and education and everything, even if we could get it to its very peak that might be considered the, the ultimate uh, we still have the same problem actually <laughs> it would not make us happy because the unhappiness in society is, is the fact that we're not awake we're not aware. We live in, in delusions. And we're always looking for happiness or fulfillment through getting something or meeting somebody or getting what we want or getting rid of what we don't like. And yet even when we get what we want and get rid of what we don't like, it's still, the problem is still there because the real, the lack that we feel, the dukkha or the suffering that, w that we feel is not due to anything out there. It's, it's lack of attention, lack of understanding. The missing factor is, is the fact that we aren't aware. We live in, in a false realm. We live in a world of uh, duality, uh, where we create ourselves, we live in delusions, and the whole society does. So it's not, I mean, it's not, uh, you know, don't take it too personally, it's the way the society works. <laughs> the society is very deluded, so. And we're, you know, we, we, we're born and grow up in this society, we, we acquire the delusions of it. But the but the uh, good factor is the fact that we awaken to it. So this awakening is the whole point, the, the, uh, the essence of Buddha's teaching. To me, Buddhism is, a, is about waking up, paying attention, being alert, being honest, you know, it's, we're not trying to say something is uh, is something else. We're not saying the anger that I that I might feel is is uh, is something it's not. I'm not calling. It, I'm not referring to it as dhamma to make it into something different. It's just a different way of looking at it. When I look at anger, and if I'm feeling this motion, which I'm not feeling right now, by the way, so don't worry. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> 
as I just pick anger because it's easy to talk about. But they, they, um, then everybody understands it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, it's not something that I- that uh, you know. If I if I claim it, when I say it's mine, then it's more than what it is in the present. You know, so it's it's. You know, when I say this anger is my anger, then that is adding something onto it out of delusion because I assume it's mine. I haven't really looked at it or understood it in any real way. I've merely assumed that every angry, uh, energetic experience I have is my problem, it's mine. And then we form opinions about we shouldn't feel angry. We should, we've got, uh, we've, you know, I was brought up in a very idealistic way where you should feel love for everyone and, and not anger. So then, the, the, you know, if it's my anger and it's bad, then, then the, the logic is that I'm bad. And the thinking goes on like that. It becomes complicated. We become, we're neurotic. We're far from reality. We live in this in this realm of fear and and uh, self aversion, guilt, isn't it? We we have a lot of guilt to deal with in Western society. People have tremendous guilt complexes because of this. So in bhavana, uh, this this word bhavana. Is it's not it's not a it, it doesn't mean you know just any kind of mental activity of, of mental discipline, but it actually means developing the path of awareness. So pavana is a is a Pali word that is clearly defined. It's not like even though I might use the word meditation as a translation, meditation is too too has too many other options for interpretation. But pavana is about awareness, investigation, insight into Dhamma or the way it is. So the awakeness is, is uh, you know, it's not something that is far away. You know, when I, we all think that, well, I'm a deluded person. When I first started meditating, I think I'm a deluded person. I need to practice probably take me years of practice in order to get rid of my delusion so I'm no longer a deluded person. That's how I felt when I first started meditating. That delusion is mine and uh, I need to do something to get rid of it, to become undeluded in the future, hopefully. And then, uh, then but then the actual instructions and practice of meditation that I experienced in Thailand wasn't one towards, wasn't encouraging creating more self-delusions around my, my experience, but seeing it in a different way. Looking at it for what it is. Uh, and so this refrain of all conditions are impermanent, that gets, you know, one can easily kind of agree to that. It doesn't take very long to figure that out. <coughs> but um, to really know impermanence in this moment, to be really be receptive enough 
aware enough to to be uh, to allow the conditions that you're feeling right now to recognize that their very nature is changing then you're actually beginning to use awareness awareness or what I call intuitive awareness which means it's it's not a thinking process we're not it's not a a rational function but it's uh, it's not uh, you know defining anything but recognizing seeing so intuitive awareness transcends the thinking process and the emotional experience of this present moment so this is the very this is the very exit out of suffering <laughs> so this uh, today this uh, reflection on Sila Samadhi Panya or I mean Dana Sila Pavana we have the Sila Samadhi Panya sequence and we have the Dana Sila Pavana uh, to me, this is a, uh, you know, I've always liked these these uh, lists of things in Theravada Buddhism. <laughs> because it does arrange your mind in a certain way that you know, I would never, you know, never think of doing if, if I didn't have these particular Dhamma teachings, Pali teachings. And so, like, like putting dana or generosity as a foundation, just think of the, that as a, foundation for society, an attitude that is encouraged in society as a basis for living happily in society. I mean, it's, uh, it's not a demand, you know, it's not a command that you have to be generous and share what you have with others. It's an encouragement. It's an invitation. And so the, the whole sequence, like morality then, is the same thing. It's encouragement, it's not a command. And then pawana is also up to the individual when you feel ready for it or you, your, your, your fascination with happiness, success in, in the world begins to diminish, then pawana becomes quite real for you. Like when I became a monk, you know, I've never had problem really living within the restraint of monasticism because I was pretty fed up with the world anyway. And it's not that it treated me badly. It, well, and the world did not treat me very badly. I had quite a pleasant enough life as a lay person. So I'm, and it wasn't a kind of bitter turning away from the world because I was treated so badly by it, but just uh, a kind of weariness seen through it no longer finding worldly values interesting enough to even want to bother pursuing them. And the, the, the one interest that did sustain me was the interest in, in the Buddha's teaching. So, I want to 
express my appreciation for all the generosity that this monastery has experienced today and has generated towards the Sangha here. Um, this, uh, it's been, you know, the, um, it's always very, very important to us to, to reflect on this and, and the, our lives are sustained through the generosity of others. And when I really develop that, then I feel uh, a lot of gratitude, this feeling of gratitude, which is a very positive, humbling feeling. Where my arrogant personality would think, I'm looking after myself. I don't need your charity. That's how I was brought up, you know. I don't want to be dependent on anybody because I can look after myself. And that's, that's the uh, middle-class American personality. But the, the realities, of, uh, for me, the, the monastic life has been a great honor, a great gift made available to me, quite unexpected, because I, I wasn't expecting to be, be a Buddhist monk. Now, this is the most anachronistic day of my life, in fact. You know, here I am, an American Buddhist monk living in England, having a royal katina from the king of Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is incongruous. <laughs> and I was brought up in the Seattle, Washington, middle-class family and good Christian upbringing. So it is a, a bit of a, you know, sometimes I, I'm surprised at my life because it, it's, uh, it's, n it's not at all what I ever expected. But it's certainly better than, uh, than what I expected, I'll tell you that. So today, the, the, the amount of uh, money that's been donated to this monastery during this katina, uh, counting checks and foreign currencies is 26,500 pounds. <laughs> so that is quite a vast amount of money. I will be <coughs> uh, Going to, uh, I've been invited to Bhutan, this Himalayan kingdom, and leave on Tuesday. Uh, and so I will be away for the rest of this month in November and December, coming back in mid-January. Uh, I have a chance to go to this, uh, and, and I didn't ask for this, it's just to the kindness <laughs> generous individuals this has been a, a given a possible you know the possibility of going to this remote place and uh, of course it is a Buddhist kingdom uh, Himalayan uh, uh, I've been to many places in the Himalayas I've been to Ladakh and and Tibet and uh, Nepal and Sikkim there's it's uh, quite a wide range of Himalayan experience, and then now I'll be able to add Bhutan to that.
but anyway, the, uh, I do appreciate having opportunity for this. Uh, and then, uh, then I will be going to Thailand afterwards, and uh, and I'll be teaching retreats there, and return uh, in uh, January. So I'll stop here, and uh, then uh, Ajahn uh, Visuddhi uh, has volunteered to to pass out the uh, calendars for the next year.